Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you turn there in your Bibles this morning? Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'm going to invite Dan Morell to come up for our scripture reading. And once you get there, if you would please stand with Dan and I this morning. What's up, Dan? For the reading of God's word out of Ephesians 2. Thanks, Jimmy. All right. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Mm -hmm. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Mm -hmm. that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord which we say. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we offer a corporate and general and genuine expression of gratitude to you this morning, especially for this passage of scripture, which is more than just some words on a page, but it is a description of who you are and who you've been in our lives. So Jesus, today, would would you, um, for those of us who have been made alive in you, would you remind us of this great work that you've done? God, help us not fall into routine and and even entitlement with our salvation. But today even, God, wake us up afresh. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. And God, anybody who's here today who who hasn't yet come alive in you, we pray that, that your spirit would draw them powerfully in your love unto you to find life in you. Jesus, we love you. And we ask God today that um, as we're here with our Bibles open and our hearts open, we pray, God, as, as Jimmy even prayed earlier, that heaven would open and that you would speak to us. We could hear you and sense that you spoke to us. That's what we ask for in this time. Holy Spirit, come and speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All righty. Well, we are in week four or maybe five. This is actually week five of our study through the book of Ephesians uh, in a series that we've entitled To the Faithful Ones. To the Faithful Ones. This book was originally a letter that the apostle, or really more in this context, the pastor Paul wrote to a church that he was involved in the early stages of planting and leading. This is some uh, 12 years after he started this church. He is writing to this church, and it's one of the more refreshing letters of the New Testament because it doesn't come with the tone of rebuke and correction. It comes with the tone of encouragement and affirmation, uh, which is sometimes that's just what we need is for those of us especially who are used to being corrected and rebuked. Every now and then it's nice to just receive some encouragement and affirmation. That's really what Paul is doing in a lot of ways because that's where this church is at. This is a, a great vision. Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, gives us a vision for the kind of church that we want to be as a community, as we continue to follow Jesus here in South Florida. Five years into this is great. My question is, 15 years into this, would Paul be able to write a letter like this to us saying, Solus Church, you have been faithful. You've been faithful to know me, follow me, serve me, and love your community as I've called you to. Uh, This is a great, encouraging book for a young church like us uh, to be reminded of who we are in Christ. We're the faithful ones, called to lives of faithfulness. Now, It is just a letter, but it's so much more than just a letter. Obviously inspired by the Spirit of God, the book of Ephesians, we've said, is like one of the mountain peaks of the mountain range of Scripture. 
So as you're trekking through the Bible, um, there's massive high moments all throughout. But this is one of those books of the Bible that is just this great summary of the kingdom of God and the work of Jesus. It's just this beautiful mountain peak. And I would almost argue that here in Ephesians 2, we may have reached the summit. It's possible. Now, that might be subjective. It's like, well, Andrew, that's your summit. My summit's actually Ephesians 4 or Ephesians 6 or Ephesians 5. Uh, but um, it, it goes without question that Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7, the verses that we just read, give one of the most beautiful summaries for the Christian and the non-Christian alike to understand what it is that Jesus has really come to do for humanity, what God is really up to in the world. And as we saw here in this passage, the work that God is up to is he's in the business, listen closely, of showing up into dead situations, dead places, the lives of spiritually dead people. This is where God shows up and he brings life. He makes alive what's dead. In fact, you can write that down as kind of the big summary of what we're studying here in Ephesians 2. Uh, Each week is a different aspect of what it means to be in Christ. And Ephesians 2 here, 1 through 7, is where Paul is describing what it means to be alive in Christ. To be alive in Christ. Now, this is a theme of scripture, a a theme of history, God bringing dead things to life. But Paul is saying here that it's the shared theme of all of our lives in Jesus. This is what he's done. As it's been well said, Jesus didn't merely come to make bad people good people. He came to make dead people living people. He came to bring life into our very bones and being and relationships with God. And that's what Paul is is describing here. This is the, the story of our lives. Maybe you've actually heard that expression before. You ever heard this expression where someone says, oh my gosh. You ever heard this? You ever said this? Story of my life, man. Story of my life. For me, it was yesterday, kind of a last-minute decision, which is how I'm prone to do things. And Brittany was out with her sister. Was, or they were doing some, some thrifting. I was home with the kids. I had a nephew with a birthday up in Orlando. The birthday party started at 1 o'clock. At 11 o'clock, I was like, we should go. <laughs> to which Brittany said, story of my life, <laughs> being married. To, okay, story of my husband. Um, but, but then I had my own story of my life experiences. I got in the car, and I, and I, I uh, had the kids packed in. We were trying to get there somewhat on time. I get in the vehicle, and after, you know, with three kids, you know, a, it's foolish to say, hey, let's go in the car and go to Orlando with five minutes' notice, even though they were excited over the moon. Uh, but that is, you, you've signed up for a 30-minute experience, okay, of making sure they have what they need. And I, I never, story of my life, I never pack all that they need. And so I'm asking them, hey, what? What does mom usually give you when we, what do you, food? Oh, food, okay, uh, snacks. So we're, we're getting the car ready. We finally get in the car, turn the car on. We're, we're, I'm like, hey, I think I'll be there just by the latest 2.30, jump in the vehicle and story of my life. What is the car on? It's on E. It's of course on E. And I share that with you. Like there's two kinds of people in the room. Even today we talked about this. Some of you guys, let me see, how many of you guys don't know that you're on empty until that light goes on? And you're like, I need to get gas. You're my people. All right. How many of you guys are like, you don't, my wife grew up in a household, I guess, where like, if you don't let it go beyond a quarter tank, how many of you guys are like that? You're special. Did you, people who raised your hand on the front end, did you see how many of them there are? We're a minority in this room, the people who, wait, last minute. Anyway, um, yeah, story of my life, story of my life. Maybe you felt that way before. There's, there's some theme of your life that, that sort of summarizes what happens. Well, in many ways, what Paul is trying to get us to say here in Ephesians 2 is that when I look at this story that Joe Foch says is the story of God taking someone from the graveyard to the throne room. When you look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, I hope you leave today with this deep in your soul where you look on at this passage and you go, story of my life. This is what Jesus has done for me. Paul's saying this is the story of our lives. The story of our lives. What Christ has done for us. We're about to enter into a season of community and one of the most special parts about a new season like this where we've had a lot of uh, handfuls of newer people come into our community recently is 
I'm excited to see how our stories are going to be known by each other. Both, both the highs and really where we connect is over the lows of our stories. And, and we all have that. You have a unique story that this church needs, that this community needs. But despite our differences in those details, what Paul would say is we do have a shared story at the end of the day. Because we have a shared Savior who has done this shared incredible work in our lives. That story of, listen, making us alive in him. That, that's Paul's big emphasis here in Ephesians 2, 1 through, through 7. Um, if you come in here today unsure, or maybe assuming, of what the Christian faith is all about, I, I want you to do your best to delete it, if it's especially become things that are just um, uh, presumptions and um, corruptions of what Jesus really represents. And I want you to do your best this morning as we go back through this passage to let Jesus teach you who he really is. And, and let him share with you what the good news of his work really looks like. There's three movements. Go ahead and write this down. In this passage that summarizes the gospel, really, there's three movements of us becoming alive in Christ that Paul wants us to be aware of and familiar with. The three movements of coming alive in Jesus, it starts with life without Christ, which Paul describes in verses 1 through 3. He gives an honest look and description of what it means to be someone who's apart from Jesus. And then he describes life through Jesus, how Jesus comes to bring us life, both abundantly and eternally, spiritually and eternally. And then he ends with describing what life looks like now in Christ. As someone who has come alive, here's what that looks like. So let's go back through and see what it means to be alive in Christ with these three movements. The first is life, as we, as we saw there, life without Jesus. Paul is going to describe who we were apart from Christ, something that I think we don't take enough time to remember. Sometimes you don't know um, how hopeless you were until you, you, you go back and you reflect on your life without Jesus. I mean, when was the last time you did that? There's nothing that will grow your appreciation and gratitude for Jesus than remembering what your life was like or what it would be like without him. And Paul is describing what life without Christ looks like. And he's going to use three descriptions. The first is, he says in verse 1, and you, notice this, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul's first description of life apart from Jesus is, he says, dead in sin. Now, the words he made alive is italicized in the New King James. So it's, it's English words that, that don't have a Greek word origin, but it's inserted to help make kind of a more light to the passage. But really, the ESV says it best. It just says, and you were dead, is what Ephesians says in the ESV. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, Paul is describing probably more than most of us think about and most of humanity realizes about their condition. This is not often how we look on at the world or, or people naturally as those being apart and separated from Jesus. But Paul's giving some really hard, brutal truth to the human condition. I kind of think of like those fixer-upper shows where, where you have these couples that, if you ever watched any of those, there's like 50 million of them. Right? It's like the same cast, different day kind of a thing. Uh, and they kind of like mix them up now because they're all like getting divorced and remarried to each other. Have you noticed that? Anyway, that's a whole other topic. But that wasn't in my notes. But usually what, this happens, and maybe you've experienced this on a fixer-upper project where like you, you kind of take as best of an honest look as you can at the house. And, you, and, and you're like, I think this is the one. And this usually along the way what happens is you bring in the inspector who comes. And, and what he often does is he opens your eyes to the fact that it's like, oh, it's worse than I thought. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't realize, oh, there's mold there? Oh, they just put wallpaper over the mold. Okay, that's, that doesn't work, does it? That's not the way to treat that. And, and that can kind of be this overwhelming experience. And there's a, there's a lot of truth to that happening here in Ephesians 2. Paul is like, it might be worse than you think. The human condition might be more than just, I'm imperfect, I sin, I struggle. Paul is using some hard language here, and he starts by saying, here's the truth. Apart from Jesus, he says, we are dead. Dead. 
dead in sin, he says. Now, obviously, the word dead there, it doesn't mean physically dead. There is a sense in which physical death is the result of sin. But Paul is speaking to a greater, deeper, more severe level of death that humanity experiences. And that's the spiritual death of separation from God. Notice what he says. He made you alive who were dead. And he uses two words, in trespasses and sins. This is the other one thing that we all have in common. The Bible says, for all humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were created to live in dependence and righteousness and relationship with God, but we have all, every single one of us, from the most religious to the most irreligious, is lumped into the same category as those that have done two things before God. We've trespassed and we sinned. Now, trespass is Pretty common word. We actually, it's a biblical word that we still use in our modern vernacular. It's, it's when you cross a line and you go somewhere that you shouldn't go. Uh, and now in our culture, it's often because somebody owns the property. But in scripture, when, when a trespass is done against God, the idea is that God has, has drawn some kind of line in the sand. And he's created parameters that exist for the benefit of everyone. Does that make sense? Like a, a train is not restricted on a track, is it? No, it's actually the safest place for it to be. A fish is not restricted in water. These are parameters that are given for the health of everyone involved. And God has done the same thing. He's given us a way to be human that leads to human flourishing in his glory. Trespassing is when we define the line on our own. It's when we say, okay, God, I know that you said that this is the line, but you know, it's 2023 Maybe that was a dotted line. You know what I mean? And maybe that line was just meant to move here or meant to move there as time went on. Or, or God, I know this is the line that you say to do this or to not do this is sin. But, but you know, God, I naturally kind of go this way. This is just my tendency. This is my, my heritage. This is who I am. We, we justify this all day long. But the scripture takes an honest approach to our lives apart from Jesus. And, and it says, listen, here's what we have in common. God has drawn definitive lines and each one of us have stepped over them. Sin. We've disobeyed. In a lot of ways, it's not a God who's up in heaven like a principal with all these rules, but I love the picture of he's a father, and those lines are going to destroy you. It's like the line I draw where I'm like, kids, you can't play in the street. That's not me being a dictator. You know what I'm saying? Like, wow, why all those rules? What's your problem, man? Okay? My kids feel that way, you know? But the genuine truth is, I want them safe. I know that playing in the street will hurt them, it will hurt me, and it distances them from me. There's trespasses. There's also sins. Now, uh, this word in the Greek is the word harmatia, where you get hamartiology, which is the study of sin. And this is the same word that's used in Romans that says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, like, we've all missed the mark. Does that make sense? And so this is something that the Bible says. The Bible doesn't allow us to play the game where it's like, well, how much have you missed the mark compared to how much I've missed the mark? You know what I mean? It's like the Bible's like, no, no, no. We've all missed the target, okay? It's not that like some people are closer to the bullseye because they're religious and other people are further. The Bible lumps humanity into the same category, being in Adam, being in sin. We go where we ought not go. And we have not lived to who God created us to be. We have all fallen short. We have all missed the mark. And the result of this is death. Do you see this? You were dead. It can actually be translated, you were dead because of trespasses and sins. This is a theme that's echoed all throughout the scriptures. Here's the most clear. It's Romans 5.12 where Paul is unpacking the gospel. Which, by the way, when we say the gospel, what we mean, the gospel is incredibly good news that can only be appreciated when you understand the situation that it saves. Does that make sense? The, like, so this is what's super hard today. I feel like today we have a lot of feel-good gospels that don't give honest truth that actually make the gospel as beautiful as it is. And so Paul's like, you need to understand the, the bad spaces that the gospel shows up to save the day. A, a cool breeze is only cool if it's hot out. Is that, does that make sense? So Paul's like, if you think it's cold and everything's fine, a cool breeze is just going to feel like the air conditioner, all right? But Paul's like, you need to see what life apart from Jesus is. It's through one man, our representative in the garden, Adam, sin entered the world. 
and death has spread through sin. We were created to live. And notice this, death has spread to all men. I want you to see this too, because all sinned. So there's this interesting, almost like paradox that Paul is saying, that we have death and we have sin in our lives because we're in Adam, but we have death and sin in our lives because we also sin. And so it's, this, it's the human condition, it's the problem with humanity, is this brokenness, this, this destructive culture and these patterns. Uh, Paul says that this clearly in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So you get a wage when you work. You put in the effort. There's a reciprocal response to that. And, and Paul says, here, here's the work that we've done. Here's what humanity has done. We've trespassed and we've sinned, and what we've reaped from that is death. Now, the scripture describes three types of death. The Bible describes physical death, which is what you might understand today as someone physically dying. The Bible describes eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. And at the heart of all of that, the Bible also describes spiritual death, which is how Paul could say to living people that they're dead. When really what he's saying is you're not actually alive, you're just physically existing because there's spiritual death in the world because of sin. Uh, now, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, or whether it's eternal death, uh, let's talk for just a few moments more this morning about death. I promise life is coming. If you've experienced death before, you understand these two things, and I'm talking now in the physical sense. It applies to the spiritual sense. Um, in death, the nature of it is lifelessness. Now, that might seem like an obvious observation, but that's truly what death is. Death is the absence of life. Just like darkness is not so much the contrast of light, but it's the absence of light. So, so that too, death, the nature of death is lifelessness. But if you've experienced the loss of a loved one before, you know that the function of death is separation. It's separation because of lifelessness. Um, that, that is the thing that's most felt when you lose a loved one is their, their absence. It, it's a separation. They're no longer here. The life is no longer here, and separation is the function and the result. And, and that is what Paul is speaking to with the human condition. This is what has happened in our lives. Listen, this is what's true about you and I apart from Jesus because of sin. We are void of the life we were created for, and as a result, we have been separated. Listen, separated from God. Separated from him. Lifeless and separate. Uh, later on in this passage, Paul will say this. He'll, he's describing an, an unsaved person, and he says that their understanding is darkened, and notice this, they're alienated, what? From the life of God. So it's both separation and it's lifelessness. Here's how Isaiah the prophet, I don't have it up on the screen, but he says in Isaiah 59, he says, it's not that God's arm is too short that he can't save, it's your, what? Sins that have separated you from God. This is the condition that we're in. This is what Paul is describing. That apart from Jesus, we, we, all, we all, every one of us, now experience physical death in the world because of sin. If we die apart from Jesus, we experience eternal death and separation from God. But the worst of all is here and now there are people who are alive but spiritually dead. They're, they're living life alienated from the God who loves them, created them, knows them, and made them for so much more. Paul's like, this is us apart from Jesus. We're, we're, not, we're, we're dead in sin, but I want you to see it's more than that. Ephesians 2, verse 2, Paul says, in which these sins, he says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Paul is like, he's tearing off the drywall, guys, okay? He's like, it's, it's, it's severe. Among whom we also conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So, so Paul says we're dead in sin, but the second thing he says is we're also dominated by evil. This is severe language. Notice he says, you're the walking dead. That's literally what he says. You once walked in that deadness. Now, a couple of interesting observations. The word walked there 
about our condition apart from Jesus, uh, it literally uh, communicates aimless wandering. You know, it's like, you ever been in, uh, uh, you've been to the mall, <laughs> and you know where you need to go, and, and you know how to get there, and you know how much time you have. But back in the day when malls actually had people in them, you know, and this would happen, there would always be like cr the crowds of people you had to make, like the hordes of walkers, you know what I'm saying? The walking dead that you had to make your way through, and they were just kind of, we're just at the mall because we have nothing to do. What Middle Eastern guy with nice hand cream? I'd love that, you know, like just kind of making their way downtown, you know, like doing their thing. And, and you're, you're like, you're on a mission. You're, you, you have a purpose. You know where you're going. But, but there's another way to live that, that Paul's kind of describing where it's aimless. There's no end to your purpose. And, and you're not actually walking towards a destination. Paul says you're like a zombie. You're the walking dead who's existing, but you're, you're not alive spiritually. And, and, and you're aimlessly wandering the earth, trying to fill a void. Notice this. He says you're walking. This is a really important word that we can miss. According to. It's used twice here according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The word according to, there, it doesn't just mean like in connection with, but that word according to, let me give you the exact definition. It literally means to be dominated by or suppressed by. You're walking dominated by or suppressed by, and he describes three forms of evil. That apart from Jesus, we are walking according to. And they are the three foes, that we are constantly battling in our lives. Paul describes them over and all, over and over throughout the Bible. It's the world, it's the flesh, and it's the devil. Paul says, apart from Jesus, you're the walking dead, living aimlessly, dominated, separate from God, dominated. He says, first, by the course of this world. The word course there literally means the, the, the wind. That's what that word course means. Like if you're in a ship and you're going to run a course and you set your sail, the course of the wind is going to set the course of your ship. And Paul's like, that is what it means to be apart from Jesus. If the culture says it, you say it. If the culture does it, you do it. If the culture approves it, you approve it. If the culture cancels it, you cancel it. If the culture believes it, you believe it. That's what Paul is saying, that, that apart from Jesus, you're, you're aimlessly just being, you might think you're free, but your freedom is a slavery to the course of the world. That's what he says, really hard truth. Walking according to whatever that, wherever that wind is blowing, Paul actually warns the church later on in this book, he's like, don't get carried away with every wind of doctrine, right? This is what it means to be apart from Jesus. Wherever the wind of culture blows, you follow it. This is what you're you're left with. I want you to notice the next thing he says, something pretty biblical and obviously uh, foreign to our, our culture, maybe this idea. But he says, that course is according to the prince of the power of the air. Notice this, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is, this is worse than we thought, isn't it? Paul's like, there's a wind of culture and there is a director of that wind. There is a prince of that air. There is a spiritual force that is in opposition to God and is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. The, the scriptures have no problem, Jesus especially, uh, giving a name and a face to the problem of evil in the world. Where our culture wants to remove the spiritual dimension, unless it gives me you know, some insight into my future, you know, um, what we try to do in our culture is just reduce everything spiritual down to natural reasons and natural causes. And, well, they're just like that because, you, you know, this or that or, or bad education or bad this. And, and the scripture is like those things interplay in our lives. There's natural causes to a lot of evil problems. But behind it is a prince, he says. This is interesting. This is the devil. There's a real spiritual foe. That Paul says, notice this, is not just blowing the, the course of, of culture, but he says it's a spiritual force that works in people. This is why Paul would go on to say we don't wrestle against flesh, flesh and blood. Do you know what I'm saying? That there's a real enemy, and he's steering the course of culture, and he actually has the power to enter people and lead them in further disobedience against God. 
Paul will even say to Christians, don't give place to the devil. Don't make, he's real. Okay, don't overestimate him. He's not God's counterpart. Don't underestimate him. He's stronger than you. He's been watching humanity for thousands of years and he's studied and he has a playbook. And his ultimate goal, notice what he seeks to do. If I can just get them to further disobey God. That's his mission. Why? Because that's his DNA. What did the angel, what did the fallen angels do? They turned away from God. This is what spiritual warfare is all about. It's like, let's resist the enemy who's trying to get us to join his rebellion effort. Let's see Jesus, who saw Satan fall like lightning, restore us back to the Father. So, so Paul is giving an honest look, and then there's one more thing that he describes in this condition. He says, we also, so there's the world, there's the devil, there's the system of culture, this godless system that's a wind that carries away from God, that without Jesus, without someone leading your life, you might think you're leading your life, but you're following someone in something. Behind that culture, Paul gives a very hard Reality, he says, there's a spiritual foe that's setting the course of that wind. He says, and apart from Jesus, you were dominated by that. You were suppressed by that course, and you were suppressed by that spirit. Notice what it says, you were also suppressed by yourself, by your own flesh. He said, we also used to conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I mean... This is really all you have if you don't follow Jesus, is you have your own desires and your own thoughts, and you're your own rabbi. You're your own leader. And Paul is describing really life apart from Jesus. It's essentially this. You're driven by your drives. Whatever drives you have, whatever lusts you have, even your your mental drives and the thoughts you have and the goals you have apart from Jesus— Paul's like, that is your master, that is your Lord. You once conducted yourself, directed by your appetites. Whatever you longed for, you gave into. These are the three classic foes that not only are non-believers, those apart from Jesus, identified under, but these are also the same three enemies that you and I wage war against each and every day. Um, One of the best explanations of this and breakdowns and practical kind of walkthroughs of this as of late is uh, John Mark Comer's recent book, Live No Lies, where where Paul is, is, uh, where where John John Mark is giving a description of each of these, um, each of these obstacles we face in life, each of these enemies, and he describes how they work together. Look at this quote from the book, Live No Lies, where John Mark Comer says this. He kind of sums up what the devil is up to today in people whose lives are apart from Jesus. He says, the devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul, your soul, and our society into ruin is these three things that work together. It's deceptive ideas. That's the enemy. He sets his native tongue, his lies. And you ever notice how deceptive ideas often play to selfish desires? It plays to disordered desires within us, the lusts of the flesh, and they're normalized in a sinful society. This, this is what we, as followers of Jesus, this is what we're trying to fight against in our discipleship. Anybody else? I got some disordered desires. I've got these deceptive ideas. They love to work together. And I've got a culture that makes it as easy as possible for me to follow my heart to disobey Jesus, to do what I want. And this is the condition of a life apart from Jesus, is this is what you're bound by. Paul's saying this. This is the most loving thing that anybody could tell you, by the way. The truth of your condition apart from Jesus. Created for relationship with God, but because of your sin, the wages of sin is death, separate from God. You're dead in sin apart from Jesus. We're also dominated by evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And and Paul actually adds a third part of this. He says, and by nature, we're children of wrath. Now, this is some hard, heavy truth. That not only are we dead in sin, apart from Jesus, not only are we dominated by evil, but we are deserving of and destined for the holy and righteous wrath of God. Now, what? I mean, 
Paul's like, hey, I, I want you to understand that the human condition is not separate from God as, as judge. And, and God is as faithful and God is holy here. This is a really interesting description. The Bible describes God, and we're going to see in a second. By the way, this is what makes his mercy and his grace so good, is what we deserve. But, but what makes, listen, a lot of times people are like, I can't imagine a God of wrath being good. You know what scripture would say? God can't be good without wrath. Without justice, without righteousness, without punishing evil, that would violate his very character. And so whenever the, the wrath of God is used in scripture, of God's response towards sin, you know, think in a lot of ways, think of it like uh, some sort of, like if, you, if a criminal commits a crime, let's say especially against a child, the most unjust thing to do would be letting that guy off the hook, wouldn't it? The natural response, because we're made in the image of God, is he deserves wrath, justice, a, a punishment. Now listen, don't you think the same is going to be true with God and his children? When he sees crimes done against his people, and this is like the theme, by the way, of Revelation, is that don't worry, because in the end, God is faithful and just. And whatever's in the dark will be brought to light. And God will be faithful to judge sinners. He's a God of, listen, holy wrath. Not like you and I, when someone cuts us off, we're like, I'm going to be like God right now and just unleash the, unleash the wrath of my steering wheel trumpet upon this individual, okay? Tell them they're number one with a select finger, okay? The, the, the sinful, don't make God in your image. God does not operate with sinful wrath. He operates with holy wrath that's righteous and just and true. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says that one of the ways that God's wrath is revealed, one of the ways, one of the ways that God's wrath is revealed is, and specifically over someone that has chosen to reject him deliberately, is he allows them to. Romans 1, read it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. How? By allowing culture to reject him and go the way of a debased mind. Sometimes what we see in our culture is the wrath and the justice of God upon people that don't want anything to do with him. And that, can I tell you something? That is, that is the worst possible life. The worst possible thing that can happen to you is not that you train wreck your life and everything gets destroyed. It's that you succeed apart from Jesus. And you die seemingly happy, but still dead in your sin. This is what, listen, the gospel lovingly speaks to the, listen, Christian, this is you apart from Jesus. How entitled do we get to our salvation, don't we? You know, entitlement's usually like a three-step process. It starts where you're like really grateful for something you weren't expecting, and then it becomes a routine that you get used to, and then it becomes a right that you deserve. And gratitude slowly slips out. And Paul is like, Christian, if your heart today is not filled with the riches of gratitude, maybe you need a reminder of who you were apart from Jesus. And if you're here today, and this is new news to you, and new information about your condition apart from Jesus, I have good news for you. Dead in sin, dominated by evil, destined for wrath. But the next thing Paul describes is not just life without Jesus. He describes life through Jesus. Ready for this? Probably the two most important words in our entire lives is but God. Amen? In Greek, entheos. This is the gospel in two words. My dad has a shirt that says, but God, and it's a great conversation starter. This is the Christian life. Here we are apart from Jesus, but God. But God, this is the good news of the gospel. I want you to notice how it started. Ephesians 2.1 started with, and you. Did you see that? And Paul's like, here's you, but God. Here's you, but God. Notice this. Here's where God shows up as the hero in the story. He's rich in mercy, but God who is rich in mercy. Uh, notice this again. Because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in trespasses. God loves even when situations. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the good news of the intervention of God in the lives of, of, of sinners, in the lives of humanity. God, notice this, here's why it's good news. Because of who he is, he's rich in mercy. This is amazing. The reason why the two words, and theos, but God are good news is because of the theology of who God is. Notice this, that was our condition. Destined for wrath, separate from God, dominated by evil, dead in our sin, but God is rich in mercy. This is the truth over your life this morning. Not just your condition, but God's character. Your condition is not the end of the story. God's character is the end of the story. But God, notice this, who he is. He is, I love this, rich in mercy. Do you know who we needed God to be? Do you know who we needed God to exactly be in this situation? We needed him to be rich in mercy. We were in desperate, our circumstance here described is that of being desperate for the mercy of God. We're at the mercy of God. And I just love this here. Like God's mercy here, it speaks to his generous love and forgiveness and forbearance and his kindness. That's his mercy. His generous kindness. When you and I are in our condition of sin, what we need God to be is generously kind toward us despite what we deserve. And I love that it says that not only is he that, but he's rich in that. Isn't that awesome? It's like, God, here's my situation. I need a little bit of mercy. Do you have any? God doesn't reach in his pocket to scrounge for some quarters and go, I think, all right, yeah, here's a little mercy. Paul's like, God has more mercy than you will ever need, than you'll ever want, than you could ever imagine. I mean, this is incredible. This is also foreign to a lot of our theology today because a lot of us, we understand that God has enough mercy to save us, but do we understand that he has enough mercy to continue to walk with you when you sin against him? He's rich in mercy. He doesn't, he's not like lacking for forgiveness. He's not lacking in compassion toward you. He's not, he's, he's not scarce in his heart towards you. He's rich in what you're desperately in need of, which is his mercy. And notice this, because of his great love, I think this is such an important observation that Paul makes. A lot of times we can detach God's heart from his actions. And we're like, well, God is God, and he's a theological box that I understand, and based on that box, he does these things, and he's kind of like, we can sort of make God out to be this robotic, theological, higher being who saves because he's God. He loves. Well, why does he love? Because he has to, because he's God, and God is love. Sorry, God, you have to love. That's how we can think. He saved me. And we can make it sort of this operational thing. But I love the, the emotion and the heart posture that Paul is describing. His salvation of your life, it wasn't obligatory. It was the overflow of his love for you. Process that. He saved you because he loved you first. He saved you out of his love for you. It's because of his great love. God acts out of his character and heart. His heart is what motivates him. When God saves you, he does so out of love. When God sent his son Jesus, the Bible says that it was a display of his love towards you and me. And so through Jesus, we have been, look at this, we've been brought to life even when we were dead. Even when we were dead. The kids and I the other day, we watched a, Film movie night, and we we uh, convinced them to do the classic, um, the Princess Bride. We did the Princess Bride. And one of my favorite scenes in there is when Wesley is brought into the miracle worker's house, Billy Crystal, and his, his the good news was he's only mostly dead, right? Paul's like that. That wasn't us. We were DOA. Yet even when even when you were dead, even when we were fully hopeless and helpless in our condition. God loves to step into those dead situations where there's no other hope except God himself. And even when we were dead, that's when he made us, notice this, alive together with Christ. He resurrects us into spiritual and eternal life by his spirit. I want you to see this here, with Christ. That's the big point here, okay? Um, Paul is speaking here of the work that God has accomplished for dead sinners in Christ. This isn't just like, without Jesus, it can be really easy to be like, okay, we're deserving of wrath, but God was just like, oh, I'm also merciful. And so like, whatever, don't worry about it. No, Paul's like, no, no, no. Salvation is of the Lord through the work of the cross. The language here is that Jesus' death and resurrection 
is the means through which we come to life. On the cross, Jesus dies our death. He becomes our sin. He becomes dead in our trespasses and sins so that we could live his life, so that his resurrection power could bring us to life in him. Even when we were dead, it's through the gospel that we're made alive together. We close with this last part. That really is rooted, I want you to see this. This is what Jesus said in John 5, 24. He says this to you, he says this to me today as well. I say to you, Jesus says this to you today, under the earshot of my voice, he who hears my word, Jesus says, and believes in him, the Father who sent me, has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment. Here's the gospel. If you are in Christ, you have passed from death to life. This is the good news. Alive in Christ. You've passed from death to life. Now, Paul closes with this last thought, and it's life in Christ. What does that actually mean? I know what life apart from Jesus looks like. It's a very stark and difficult and and harsh even reality. I see the work of the gospel that Jesus goes to the cross. He takes my dead situation. He rises from the dead to bring me to life in him. I'm no longer dead, but now I'm fully alive in Christ. But Paul describes a few things. He says for the Christian that what he's done for us, life in Christ looks like being raised up together. I really love that. Okay, we get the picture, right? Like Paul is looking back on the gospel story. That Jesus is crucified, he's buried, he's made alive, and he's raised up. And eventually we see that he ascends to the right hand of the Father, but we'll talk about that. But, but the idea is that Jesus, who was once dead, is now um, no longer a dead man walking, but he's a previously dead man who's now a living man walking. And as even uh, Jimmy mentioned, those on the road of Emmaus, uh, people are, in, uh, over 500 witnesses, are encountering Jesus raised to life. That's the language that Paul is using. Like, you used to be, I mean, this is what it means to be converted. People are like, you're different. It's like, I'm alive now in Jesus. From God's perspective, I love this verse in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. The Christian faith, by the way, has great history and great accuracy and great evidence that points to the truth claims of both Jesus and the whole narrative of the Bible. Uh, Jesus himself gave great proof to his resurrection. I love this. Paul's like, you're alive too. And, I, and there's almost a sense in which it's like, is there proof? It's a good question. Are there infallible proofs to your resurrection in Jesus. This is what God wants to manifest to the world through your life. He wants to show life through you. There's, there's three categories that I think of when I think of being new and alive in Jesus. Your head is alive to think the truth of God. Your heart is alive to love God and love people. And your hands are alive to serve Jesus and however he would call you. Apart from Jesus, our minds are, are, are lost in darkness. Our hearts are cold and and they haven't yet been transformed by the love of God. And our hands exist to serve our own needs and ourselves. But what infallible proofs that Jesus has made us alive. How awesome would it be for people to look on us and be like, you have a life that's different than everyone else. It's like, yes, because we're alive in Jesus. And here's the proof of it. With our, our, our minds, we think the truth. With our hearts, we, we love one another. Did you know that actually John says this in 1 John 5, John says that this is the evidence that you and I have passed from death to life, that we love each other. Love. You're alive with a heart to love. You're also alive with, with hands that say, God, I'm here for you. I'm here to serve you and serve anyone else that you've put in my life. These infallible proofs. Uh, Paul will unpack this and he'll say this. As Christians, you know what we need to do? Even today, we need to be reminded that we've been alive from the dead through Jesus, so we need to make sure that we are dead to sin and we live alive to God. What a great encouragement. Live alive in Jesus. You are alive in him. So Paul's like, live that raised up life. Reckon yourself dead to the world, dead to the flesh, dead to the enemy, and be alive to God in Jesus. Amen? Listen, we got one more verse. I'll invite the band to close us in this time. Paul is describing what life is in Christ looks like. He says that he's raised us up, and I want you to see the height to which he has resurrected us. It's following the thread of his own death and resurrection. Jesus died. He was made alive. 
God raised him up. And I love that there's like corporate language here. Here's what Jesus has done for us through the gospel. And he's made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I love first, like, just the language there. He's like, maybe sometimes you're like, why do I have to go to church today? Well, because he makes us sit together, okay? That's what, that's what, it's what the gospel is. Hey, people who would never sit together in a room like this apart from Jesus, sit together and display the goodness of Jesus. Be a community of people that, who, apart from Jesus, were dead in your sin, but together in Jesus, you're alive. And we worship him with living hearts. Sit together in Christ. Sit around the table together in Christ. But notice the position. We're seated together. I love this. In heavenly places in Christ. So his resurrection is our resurrection. And Jesus ascends and his ascension becomes our position. Isn't that wild? You're not just alive from the dead. You are seated in heavenly places. You can't get more alive than that. At the right hand of the Father. This is speaking to a future reality that's so true, it's as if it were present right now. This is the future hope of you and I. Notice why we're seated in these heavenly places. Here's your future, that in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Jesus. Maybe today there's a lot of uncertainty that you have about your future. And I want to give you one certainty that should overshadow every other uncertainty. His loving kindness is your forever future. I don't care what your past has looked like. I don't care what your presence feels like this moment now. He made you alive. He conquered the death that you still often fear. He's filled you with his spirit. He's calling you to be alive to him. And he's seated you in a position of grace and kindness at his right hand where he favors and loves you today. This is your future. It's his loving kindness. The word there means that, that for all of eternity, we're gonna explore the depths of God's grace. And also here in the meantime, we are his exhibits to the world of grace. When people look on at our lives and they go, what do you have to show? What's there to be displayed from your life? We say we were dead, but Jesus made us alive in his grace. People encounter that and they experience that. They get a taste of that. This is you in Jesus. Maybe today you're here and you're like, I, I don't know that life. All you need to do is look to the life of Jesus. Look to the death of Jesus. Trust in him and it's a work of grace where his spirit makes you alive just through a simple direction, a simple look of your, of your eyes and, and a direction of your heart saying, God, save me. Maybe today your prayer is just this, Jesus, make me alive in you. I recognize that I'm dead in sin apart from you, but make me alive in you. And for those that are in Jesus today, maybe the prayer is this, God, let your life abound in and through me. Amen.